What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. Consequence Podcast Network. people. Leo Phillips here with This Must Be The Gig, your backstage pass to the world of live music. Every week we bring you fascinating conversations from the beating heart of the performance scene with some of the most exciting names on this gigantic big spongy globe. We talk passion, we talk first concerts, last concerts and everything in the Juicy Centre. This week I'm delighted to bring you a live recording from New York City at StubHub's HQ in Times Square where we were joined by the dynamic duo of Lee Ronaldo and Raul Referee. We chat about their first concerts, Sonic Youth's tour with Neil Young, Raul's work with flamenco heroes such as Rosalia and so much more. But before we dig into all of that, let's check in with our constant companion here at TMBTG Studios. Hello, Engineer Adam. Hi. Hey, hi, hi. How's it going? I always get mellifluous with my hellos. I don't know what it is. It's just you bring it out of me. I'm also excited to dig once again into our favorite feature here at TMBTG Studios. That would be the live show of the week. So what do we do every week? During the live show of the week, we highlight one of the most heart-thumping events we could find out there and share it with you, our pod people. We do. And for this week, we have two fantastic live shows that we've chosen to highlight. We couldn't be limited to one. We needed two. That's true. So I'm so excited. So the first one that we that I think would be crazy to ignore is the superb Adult Swim Festival at Bank of California Stadium in Los Angeles. 
November 15th and 16th. This year's lineup includes one of my favorite artists, Tierra Wack, Vince Staples, Jamie XX, Health, Health, I love Health, Ladies of LCD Sound System, also one of my favorites, and all of your cartoon your cartoon loves as well. They'll all be there. Mm-hmm. Eric Andre show will be there, for oh. goodness sake. Wow. I'll go just for that. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. We would be equally remiss to leave out a pair of shows from those darling podcasting McElroy brothers. Ooh. We're talking Chicago Theater here on November 13th and 14th. The first night will be The Adventure Zone, and then the latter will be a good old My Brother, My Brother and Me. So if you love podcasts and delightful goobers (laughs) you won't want to miss those shows and if you want to get in on the excitement of those shows or any other you can head over to stubhub via cosradio.lv slash stubhub that's cosradio.lv slash stubhub and find the best selection of tickets to the hottest shows once more that is cosradio.lv slash stubhub so let's focus on this week i'm gonna jump in and add the review thing and while I'm asking you to go to websites, also pop open... You sound almost out of breath. <laughs> I am. I'm so excited. Pop open... Your eyes are popping ah, out of you. <laughs> pop open your podcasting app of choice yes. and go find us. Rate, review, subscribe. Eee. Five stars right now. Go do it. It takes you five seconds. It's very important for us. So it has to happen right now. Go and do it. And when you do go and do it, <laughs> it's not so vague... When you go into that little portal on the Googles of whatever podcast platform you have chosen to listen to, as part of your review, I think, this is a great suggestion, by the way, you need to leave us your love and also maybe your bank account details and also (laughs) a five-star review that includes your first concert that you ever went to. Let us know. Share it with the world. It's a topic every single week, so why not just share yours? Don't understand. What are you waiting for? No, don't go in. No, don't go anywhere. Stay with me and then do it afterwards. (laughs) Did I just hold somebody's hand? Oh, no. Metaphorically, I did. I held their earlobes. So let us focus on this week's interview. We feature a recording of the first in our new series of live events from StubHub HQ in New York City. I sat down with Lee Ronaldo and Raul Referee in front of a really lovely and quite, um, they were an enthusiastic and very talky crowd, part of my direction. Absolutely. Which I gave them in the beginning. You'll hear some encouragement for some of that. <laughs> and, um... So our chat is in honor of the duo's new record coming out next year through Mute Records, which is another one of my favorite labels of all time, which if you have been listening to this show for a while, you know that. You know that. Throughout his decades as a member of Sonic Youth, Lee has continuously experimented and expanded his artistic palette, working as a painter, a poet, and so much more. Raul, meanwhile, established himself as a unique musical mind as a member of Spanish hardcore outfit Cornflakes, and has since moved on to a powerful and diverse solo career, as well as producing a variety of artists, including flamenco legends and vibrant stars. The duo recently completed work on a new album, Names of North End Women, out shortly in 2020. 
The record pairs the expected guitar wizardry with some electronic beats, samples, experimental percussion. And before we chat about the new album, we talk about cycling while on tour and how that eases the mind. We talk about Guns N' Roses and also Michael Jackson comes up. And you'll also get to hear a world premiere of the title track to the record Names of North End Women. This is me, Lee and Raul. Enjoy! Hi everybody, it's really wonderful that everyone is here. I think I should introduce myself because people are probably like, who is she? My name is Lior Phillips and I just want to kind of say if you've had a bad day, I hope over the next hour that bad day can wash away. If you've had a really good day, I hope it gets better and not worse. That would be counter... Before we get going, I just want to say, did you just not... Like, yeah. Um, (laughs) If you could silence your phone, I'm not going to ask you to turn your phones off. Just maybe silence your phones. If it goes off, that's natural. We'll go with it. You can pick up. We can have a chat to your mom. Also, if you want to clap, there's no mics out there. So clap really loudly. If you want to laugh, no mics. So laugh really loudly. I don't have a laugh track to add. And now, I think I should introduce my first guest. Lee Ronaldo. <laughs> All right. Mick. All right. Mic check. Um, I try to do that Vivazella thing. That's for my Oh, yeah. Well, you you should, know? We should have brought should have brought, brought them. I don't know. I didn't. Lee. Hi. Hi. I'm so How excited. I have cards. Yes, I see you have cards. Well, look at that. They all oh. have the um, logo. Obviously, I am thrilled beyond to have you here, as well as Raul. And I want a musician and producer. I just I wanted to introduce you with your standard bio, which I found so unbelievably impressive. And then I was like, well, why don't why doesn't Lee just introduce you? So <laughs> because you know each other and you work together. We do. So Lee, do you want to introduce Raul? Yes. I'd like to introduce my good friend from Barcelona, Spain, Raul, Raul Refri, Raul Fernandez. Musician, composer, producer, singer. And uh, we've been working together for the last four or five years, and it's been really fruitful. So how... We'll get, we'll get into that. We'll okay. get into that. To give us some context, what kind of day have both of you had? Because I didn't even ask that earlier when we, when we had a chance to meet. Um, well, we both, we've been working really intensively. Raul's here in New York for three weeks. We're actually sorti- sorting out how to play the new record live. Mm. That's our main goal for these three weeks. Right, okay. But today we, had, we each had morning appointments. Raul was mastering another record that he produced mm-hmm. uh, in Greenpoint. And I went to the eye doctor. Give it up for Greenpoint. <laughs> Greenpoint in the house. And, uh, Wait, did you say you went to the eye doctor? I went to oh, the God, eye this doctor. this is so great. Yeah. Anyone listening at home, because this is also for a future episode, have you been to the eye doctor lately? Yes. You know, I you got to just My eyes are all dilated and blur- been blurry all day. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, you know. And we, we share a, a love of, of cycling, so we didn't cycle together today, but I went on a 
bike ride this afternoon. I was to That's clear so my wonderful. head for this. Do you do that a lot when you're on tour? Do we you try, try to. And cycle Whenever around? we are, we try to. We're pretty obsessive about it. And it's uh, if we're not talking about music and guitars, we're normally talking about cycling and bikes. But is it is it is cycling for you exercise based, or is there a point at which you totally just escape from the world and you can travel and look around and? It's it's exercise for sure, but it's also kind of a meditative thing. You know, I think a lot about uh, lyrics when I'm writing and, you know, I don't know. I, I find it to be kind of a, like a meditative uh, activity as well as a really uh, strenuous yeah. exercise, you know. <laughs> I'm going to bike 500 yeah. miles yeah. today. Yeah. And also you're traveling around, you're seeing nice places, you know, or in Central Park or wherever. Do you cycle when you tour to a new country as opposed to, because a lot of people like taking, you know, buses to discover places. They like walking a city. Do you cycle a city? If possible, yeah. We took we took we were in South America last year with with our trio, and we took an amazing ride up this massive hill in Santiago in Chile, and uh, we we did some Chile Give in it the up house. For Chile. <laughs> <laughs> you That's know, so great. we we did we do we right we do. Yeah. So tell me how you both met. You said that you've been working together for a few years. So when did it all happen, and how did you actually start making? making music together it happened in barcelona it happened in barcelona it was because you were on tour and you had a festival in morocco i think and it was yeah. canceled like maybe three or four days before and i think if i can remember that you asked people from primavera sound to for a producer because you wanted to record something you had some days there and they recommended to me to be together with lee and and do a record there yeah and we both thought that it was a very good to work together. Yeah, it was a surprise. Yeah. You know, we had these we had this hole in our schedule because we were supposed to play this gig in Morocco and we knew all along that it was never going to happen. It was out in the desert. It was this massive crazy festival idea and of course a week before they were like it's not going to happen. So we oh, had a week off in Barcelona and as Raul says our our local contacts were like we had my band had been playing a lot of acoustic shows at the time with stand up bass and everything Steve Shelley playing the cajon and things oh like my that gosh. and uh, they said like well why don't you record some of this stuff go into a studio for a couple of days and make a quick acoustic album with songs from your last couple of records and they brought Raul in uh, to produce and we had a great time working together i just remember that the last session of that trip was in your home studio i came over to do all the vocal the fine, mm -hmm. final vocals And we just kind of got closer and closer. And, and before I left, uh, Raul said, you know, this was a record where we were doing some cover songs and remakes mm -hmm. of songs from my first two solo records. And he said, like, I'd love to work with you on a new project at some point. And so we started talking back and forth on email, sharing demos and things for, I don't know, nine or ten months or a year. And then finally, uh, we got together for a couple of weeks just to try something out. And it immediately just like this thing started Expanded. to happen. Yeah. yeah. And that became the the last record, Electric Trim, mm -hmm. which we worked on over, I don't know, over the course of about a year together. Wow. So that distance apart didn't actually make any difference. You were still working organically together and sending each other tracks or ideas. None of that. You didn't have to be in the same place. Well, I think nowadays it's quite easy to work together on the distance. I mean, we can say it's easy to send music from one side of the ocean to the other one. But if I can remember, I, I had a concert or two concerts in New York during that period where 
when Lee was starting to think about new record. So we took advantage that I was here. Was course. it the one with Rosalia or we, not? No, with, with, Silvia, with, with Sylvia. Oh, okay, okay. It was with okay. Sylvia Perez Cruz. Yeah. But mostly we find it's better when we're together to work. Mm, so we spend, course. you know, we travel back and forth. Raul comes here for periods of time. We work in, in the Sonic Youth studio in Hoboken. And I'll go to his uh, to place and crash in his uh, front yard in Barcelona. Yeah. <laughs> work in his studio. So that's the so that's how you did the new the brand new album that's coming out next year. Yeah. You recorded in both. Yeah, mostly of those recorded studios. here okay. in New York and mixed in in Barcelona for the most part. Both the, both the last two records. That's kind of yeah. the way it went with some between. exceptions. With some exceptions. It's, it's quite nice then to have both of your comfort zones as well then kind of meshed into one album as well as obviously both of your ideas. Yeah. So that kind of, it's great that it brings in both of those, yeah. that spirit. Yeah. But we want to premiere a track, if that's okay. Great. <laughs> yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. Um, the track is the title track to the record, Names of North End Woman. And do you want to just, either of you, tell me a little bit about the song that we're about to play? Um, well, uh, it's called Names of North End Women. And the North End refers to a place in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, where my wife is from. And uh, we were there. We usually go there for the holidays in the middle of the dead of winter when it's like absolutely freezing there. And uh, we were driving through the North End of town, and there was one section where all the street names were women's names, you know, Gertie, Harriet, Kate, Lydia. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, something struck me about it as, as a way to have a thematic uh, idea for the record like about not just women but like the people in your life the people that drift in and out of your life over like a long stretch of you know if you're looking at your life the people that you are still have a relationship to the people that you once had a very strong relationship to perhaps and maybe don't anymore you know just <clears throat> thinking about uh, things and I wrote down all the names of the street signs and it just it read like a poem you know, so I made this little poem, Names of North End Women, mm. and that's, that's kind of how the idea for the record started. And we kind of, I, I was thinking about using that loosely as a concept for the record. And, and so this track, uh, we have a third collaborator on this record, mm -hmm. as we did with the last record, a, a writer named Jonathan Lethem, mm -hmm. one of our great mid-career American yes. writers, who's a, an old friend, and he wrote uh, a lot of the songs, the lyrics with us on the last record. The last record, the lyrics were written either by me or me and Jonathan. Mm -hmm. On this record, they are written by either me or me and Jonathan and Raul. We all kind of contributed to the lyric writing on this record. And this track is one where we all contributed to the all lyric right. writing for sure. Um, and something about the music. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that this record started, we were thinking about like working on a new album, this new album, and I just came here last July, not this last one, the previous year, and I was coming from Sonar because I did a performance, they asked me to do a performance to the 25th anniversary, so I just was coming from playing something electronic, so we started on the guitar, but then I sampled that guitar, remember, that yeah. you had that idea, so... That became, I think, the process that we have been doing during the whole record, like mm. playing instruments. Uh, here we have gamelans at the beginning, but they, they are sampled and played again through the sample. Right. You know, the last record started from demos I had. I had these really rough demos that we 
together kind of created into the songs from Electric Trim. And when we got together, as Raul said in July, I had another group of demos, but we almost immediately threw them out and just decided to start from scratch and like build these tracks up. Mm. And, and the record as a whole is kind of a, a mix of... There's a lot of electronic stuff and sampled sounds, and there's a lot of acoustic recorded yeah. sounds, whether it's marimbas or gamelons or acoustic guitar or even electric guitar. You know, it's mm. still recorded acoustically in a way. But So it's kind of an interesting mix of the two. But we built yeah. these songs up uh, in the studio from scratch together and kind of ignored most of the demos. Yeah, there's a really beautiful percussive texture to a lot of the songs, especially this track, which I'm so excited to yeah. hear. And it's just, uh, it's so, it's something that I haven't heard Good. In a while, and it's just so wonderful. And so we're going to premiere the track now, and so you all can have a chance to listen to it. Okay. Domesticate and goblet. <laughs> <laughs> 
resuscitating amber. Never gonna make it home. Oh, and an exposed body burning like a blast furnace. Never left like a copycat. Oh, a Darwin, Danish, maybe a Democrat, emboldened in the buttermilk. Now Maggie's on the verge, hardly making any sense, slip into the handcuffs. Wonderful, especially listening in a room full of people. Yeah. I know it was a little awkward in the beginning because we're like, what, are we, what should we do? Yeah. But that was, that was great. 
How'd that feel? <laughs> it's good. Yeah, you know, it's funny because we've been listening to it so much, just yeah. us. <laughs> and we, it's, it's fun to finally start to share some of this stuff. Uh, oh, with, I can imagine. People. When did everything, when did you finish everything? When, when did you put that stamp, stamp of approval? Um, we finished the music like around Christmas time of 2018. And then we, right, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so. and then we kind of spent some time mixing after that. I went to Barcelona in February and mm -hmm. again in March. And uh, first in February, we were doing last minute recordings, <laughs> vocals and some other things. And then in March, we were mixing. And then we spent a few months uh, deliberating and remixing. And <laughs> yeah, mixes were slower than we thought at the beginning. Yeah. We took a while. Yeah. But, How did that land up? Why did that happen? Well, you know, that's always the point where you're, you know, we're listening to this stuff for, for a long time and really excited. You know, this is a common thing that happens in the studio. You know, you, when you're listening to it in a natural way as you're working, it sounds great. And then when it comes finally time to, like, mix it, you're, like, setting it in stone. Right. And, and you have to make all those final decisions. And so there's always a bit of second-guessing or wondering if you've got it perfectly. So some of the songs we mixed, and then, you know, a month later we... we mixed again to try and get a little bit more mm. out of them and mm. things like that. And speaking from a lyrical point of view, I know that you've written poetry. How do you create that musical kind of portrait around that poetry and around your lyrics, especially maybe on that song? I know you mentioned a little bit of the backstory on the song. Mm -hmm. So how do you create that uh, mesh of those two worlds? Well, you know, the, the whole working process of this record was kind of a very collage montage process we were building stuff up some of these songs because there was a lot of electronics and, and we were playing a lot of stuff live we were trying different things so if you came in on monday and heard what we were doing and came back on wednesday it might sound like a completely <laughs> yeah. different song like stuff gets thrown out other stuff gets brought in and so it was very very collage oriented and in a way, the, the, the lyric writing process on this record was also less direct and more mm -hmm. like fragmented and almost surrealistic. Like Jonathan was sending me lyric sheets and I was writing lots of different lyric sheets or pulling out old poems and things and just setting up like, you know, five or six papers on a few music stands and like grabbing a line here, grabbing a line <laughs> there and then right. trying to make sense of them and, and kind of working in this more open-ended way so the songs are have a little bit more of a fragmentary quality in, in some cases rather than mm. strictly linear what, um, what, what was the need to do it in that way was it just because you've not done it in that way in the past i guess so i think we were looking to create something different you know we were looking to make something very different from the last mm. record and i mean i think maybe one thing that it struck us as we were working is like we were definitely not making a rock record. We wanted to make something very different. <laughs> right. We were talking about a lot of different electronic artists mm. that were like uh, doing, you know, like Ryuchi Sakamoto or Max Richter or some other right. people like that. We were, our reference points were getting further and further afield and we wanted to make these kind of sound landscapes mm. and, you know, and use the vocals in a, in a different way. Yeah, but at the same time, we didn't want to lose the, the attitude of, Rock. Right, yeah. the essence no, of it. Think, yeah, I think the songs have this too. Yeah, uh, and sometimes with the lyrics too, we were like recording the whole vocal track and moving some words. Uh, yeah, like yes. to the beginning or to the end, just to create something. 
in a way, the music is a little bit algorithmic mm. and the lyrics too. You know, sometimes you, you come into the studio when you're working on records, and like if, especially if you've got a song that you practiced at home, you've got the lyrics kind of written out. And in this case, this record made me understand more the way, like some singers, and especially a lot of modern music, I think it's made where a singer just gets in the, in the vocal booth and gets on the mic and starts freestyling, yeah. and something happens, and then you, you, you grab the kernels that are really good and you, you compound on them. And I think we worked a little bit more like that. And, you know, it was like, well, which vocal sounds good? What's, what's the right mm -hmm. attitude for the vocal? What's, what words kind of roll off the tongue well yeah you know? and then it allows you to experiment in that front all throughout the album as opposed to like this is just something we're going to do for you know a demo yeah and then release that or never release it yeah but then you mentioned obviously the people that you were looking uh, you know listening to and influenced by and i know that Haley from circuit to you yeah. is on the new album which yeah. i was really excited to read and listen. Yeah, we are both how, huge fans huge, of Haley for Huge fans. Yeah. Tell me, how did that come about? And uh, did it start from just being a simple fan on your side? We became huge fans of her over the last couple of years. I met her a couple of years ago at an event we both did together. And we ended up, uh, it was a 24-hour uh, anti-drone marathon in Minneapolis. <laughs> and we ended up being playing next to each other. And uh, we ended up kind of playing together for about mm. 20 minutes in like the crossfade between our sets and just kind of hung out. And uh, I, I absolutely love what she does. And I was super crazy about it's the last It's mind-blowing. I'm watching it. And her voice is so special. <laughs> yeah. And we had a couple of places. We on. saw her before that. We were touring. We were on tour. And we had a day oh, in off London. in London. Yeah. yeah. And she was playing as a support band of Julia Holter. Yes. I think. And Such a good the combo. first word she sang we were both, oh my God, yeah. awesome. Yeah, and yeah. She was, that was a that? solo gig for her part. I mean, her band is awesome, but she was playing solo in London. And we just, you know, we really just loved what she do, did and her voices. If you don't know her voice, it's really deep and low, kind of Nico-esque or something mm. like that. And she's an amazing creative person yeah. that we've gotten kind of closer to and more friendly. But we had a couple places on the record where we just thought, this would be a good place to have somebody else do something, you know? And we, yeah. we went, we had a few, we, we made some lists and, you know, tried some different things. And, and uh, Haley uh, was in deep in the middle of, of doing some stuff on her own, but found some time to, to work on one, one of the songs, which was super cool and uh, entrusted us. Like she, yeah. we played her some stuff and she really liked what we were doing. And so she sent us back, you know, a bunch of takes and said like, you know, use what you want and trusted us to yeah. she's there's just something so special it's like almost something haunting and also because i've seen her play yeah. in like really old churches around the world and she's also really smart in that sense she really is kind of one with her music which i find yeah. both of you it feels yeah. so natural so i say haunting in the best way yeah. possible yeah, yeah. and she's also <laughs> an extreme risk taker in a way She's right. th th this performance that I was talking about earlier where I where I met her personally in Minneapolis she was just doing vocals for 45 minutes oh and God. it was like it, she brought a little <laughs> painting and she stared at the painting like in a meditation with a microphone and like some loop things and just vocalized for 45 minutes it was like it was pretty extreme and, and naked performance mm. and and you know she's willing to challenge herself in that way and that's one of the things that I think we like about what she does mm. a lot. And what I'm sure you like doing with yourselves as well. Yeah. To yeah. be that's that extra layer of vulnerability 
when you're creating what? vulnerability. Oh, okay. <laughs> what did you think I said? I thought you said some South African terms. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that to you. Um, but I think that uh, the vulnerability, I think that that's also part of what you were talking about earlier, Raul, in, in like, there's like patches of things that you brought. You know, you took one lyric and you also mentioned it, one lyric from one place and one musical idea from another. But you have to be not confident as such because you're taking a risk but you also have to know that you trust in who you're working with you trust yeah. yourself <clears throat> uh, you know experimentation is such a tricky thing to grasp but at the beginning when we started this record we both thought okay let's make whatever we want to make without thinking I know that can sound like, like a topic but at right. the end no but it's true and we thought okay maybe we're not going to play this record maybe it's going to be like an EP or a short record or something experimental for a mm. small label but we were growing and growing and Mute got in really liked what we were doing and at the end it's like a proper record and we are really excited about releasing it but we were working without thinking that it will be a record that's a good point just working yeah. just like working in the lab in a way and I have to say one thing that's <laughs> happened with I us right that. since the beginning especially when we started Electric Trim is that we are having a a freaking blast in the studio together. <laughs> it's so tell. much fun working <laughs> together. Tell. And so, yeah, so things are, are percolating like that. But, I mean, the funny thing is, you know, this record sounds so different from mm. the last one. Mm. And the, the people at the record label, Mute, hadn't heard anything. And, like, when we finally were ready to send them the tracks, we were like, well, gee, what are they going to make of this? It's, like, not not in line with what we did last time. And, and uh, lucky for us, they came back just saying like, wow, this is, they mm. were really super positive about it, which gave us a lot of uh, confidence mm. in what we were doing at that point. It made us feel really yeah. good that we were, you know, we were trying something different and getting, getting the, the mm. right kind of feedback from Why from did the you label. feel like now was the time to do something like that? Why did, how, why did you feel like it was the perfect moment to, to take that risk and to, to just do something different and have fun whilst doing it, which I know sounds ridiculous because you just expect everybody to be having fun, but a lot of people find that's, that side of the process. You know, there's all different stages. They find that side of the process kind of stress stress fueled and or there's this imaginary, you know, expectation attached to it. So why why now? No, I think after making the last record, we just, I think we kind of solidified this idea that we are a working duo. And, yeah. you know, rather than just put out another batch of songs, we thought, like, we can do so many things. We could try so many things and go down so many different avenues or mm. roads. And we wanted to push ourselves to do something different in a way. And that's why we stopped with the song demos and just sort yeah. of create this thing. The other thing I was thinking while we were talking that I wanted to say is that, yeah. you know, we did, we used a lot of like super modern electronic equipment, which Raul is the master of and I know very little about. Um, and we used a lot of acoustically recorded sounds in the studio. Like we dragged out these gamelons that Sonic Youth brought back from Indonesia in the 90s when we toured there and, <laughs> and we're playing. Cassettes. Yeah. Well, this is what I was going to say. And then we the found customers. this... Um, I, I have this old cassette recorder. It's like a, a cassette recorder made by the Library of Congress, and it's specifically made for blind people. And it's, uh, it's a cassette recorder where you can switch buttons and play like the front side of the cassette or the back side. You can slow it down. You can yeah. speed it up. You can you know, play it twice as fast. And, and so we were doing all this, these experiments, especially in the, the later songs we made, with these crude cassette analog tapes. And so using this like 
30, 40 year old technology next to yeah. like machines that were built six months ago, you know, and like rolling it all together in, in a cool way. So we've got like these stretchy analog tape sounds with tape hiss and all that stuff. And then these really pure digital sounds. And then, you know, there were marim we have marimbas and vibes mm. in our studio that we were playing. And, and mostly we, like, as Raul was saying before, we, a lot of it is cut up in the computer, mm. but we're playing the stuff, either he's playing or I'm playing and we're recording each other. And then, you know, finding ways to do something with the sounds in an experimental way. Also, in terms of the vocals, there's spoken word sections mm -hmm. on this record. There's kind of what we would call bigger chorus-y kind of choruses like the chorus on the song we mm -hmm. heard. And, and then there's, you know, there's abstract stuff and there's a real mix of different things. I think, I was thinking that really anything was planned before. We were changing. Mm -hmm. Nothing uh, was planned. Uh, nothing was planned, thank you. <laughs> nothing was planned. I, I thought about this before start the sentence. <laughs> I think anything was planned. Nothing anything was planned. Anything can happen. Yeah. Um, it was nothing. No, nothing, <laughs> nothing was planned before, and we were changing directions while we were working. And in a way, we start to get tired about some sounds and machines. So we were changing, and we're like I don't know, finding the cassettes and working with the cassettes because we were finding some excitement there. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it was not a route to take. We were even, we didn't know it was, if it was going to be a record. Mm -hmm. Maybe the only thing, and that's why I mentioned that I had in my mind and I think I mentioned to you before we started, it's that I wanted to try spoken word because Lee's so good on spoken word and we had so very few sections of spoken mm -hmm. word on the previous album. Yeah that I thought that could be a very good idea. And it's been a good idea. Yeah, I really yeah. love that section. It worked out And really there's good. something so unplanned and strong about spoken word, right? It's, it's a form of activism. It's a form of poetry. It's a form of just feeling, you know, and just letting everything out. Yeah. So I think also bringing that in, in a time when you are experimenting on different instruments and bringing different things in, that just absolutely makes sense yeah. for the time. Yeah. Pause the podcast. Pause the podcast. Are you looking at a calendar full of great events but struggling to find tickets? StubHub's gotcha. Whatever your favorite band, team, or venue, StubHub is here to save the day with the best tickets for any budget. Whether you're looking for a seat at a Broadway show, tickets to the summer's big arena tour, or a night of cheering on your hometown team, StubHub has the seats you're looking for at the price you want to pay. Head to cosradio.lv StubHub or their user-friendly app to find tickets that are 100% guaranteed by FanProtect. StubHub's never sold out with the most shows, the most tickets, and the most fans. So head on over to cosradio.lv slash StubHub or the StubHub app. The best tickets to the best experiences in music, sports, and theater. That's cosradio.lv slash StubHub. The other thing about this record that uh, is surprising to me is that you know, given that I'm kind of known as a, like a noisy guitar player, there's actually very little guitar on this record, <laughs> yeah. which is really weird. And we didn't plan that, but that's just kind of the way it turned out. We got involved in all these other sounds. And, and in a way, that's a cool development mm -hmm. as well, that, you know, we could work together. The last record was heavily guitar-based, and, and this record is really not. I mean, there's bursts of guitar used very effectively, but it's not a guitar-based record, which is, is, is a step in a new direction mm -hmm. as well. 
Which is cool. But I liked what you said earlier, where the, the, the essence is still there. So it doesn't sound mm. like completely uh, devoid of that. It still yeah. has it underlining whether it's, you know, using, as I said earlier, there's a percussive texture to it, which you can create with a guitar, yes. the tapes. Punk attitude, uh, it's fundamental on everything. Yeah. For me, everything that yeah. I do, and I think for Lee yeah. too. So we can play, I know, the Octatrack, like the sample, we can play like the marimba or whatever and we try to be punk in that sense just to play what we what we feel that we have to play not think sure. about anything else yeah i love that punk <laughs> um so <laughs> okay now we're gonna get do that to your game point. when you do that um so <laughs> i don't know what that was so what i always ask on the show and i did prep them so this is also i shouldn't have done that but i did um, you've We been so you kind. You've anyway. been so kind. <laughs> so what I always ask is, what was your first concert that you ever went to? So it is the most embarrassing one, but it probably from the two of you will be very cool. Who wants to go first? Okay, uh, I'll do it. You said you could lie, you can lie if you yeah, want, yeah. but I'm not gonna lie. I did I'm not, not gonna say lie. that. <laughs> Okay. No, okay, yeah, you can lie. What's Michael Jackson? So I'm proud really? I'm that's proud of amazing. it. Really? Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. mine wow, too. That's awesome that you saw him. Wow. Yeah, 87, I think, in Barcelona. That's I was cool. 11 years old at that time. It was for Bat, the, the tour. Bat, Bat tour. <laughs> there's, a, there's a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't believe me. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but that's a crazy first concert. That's it's like in a big arena. Yeah, it was a Camp Nou, that it just Barca Stadium. And yeah, it was amazing. But I remember, I remember that I, I stand up on, on my chair because all the images that, I, that I've seen of concerts were like that, like people stand, like jumping or whatever. <laughs> and it was like, I was right in front of the stage, maybe, I don't know what, what line, but I did that and the people from behind like knocked me on my back <laughs> and saying, uh, please, can you just sit down? And I said, what's happening here? This what up? I'm, I'm dancing. What up? <laughs> that's yeah. a concert. So that was my first impression oh, that's of concerts. wonderful. Wow, that's also kind of monumental to see it in at that tour because I feel like especially when he was playing all those gigantic, he just would make it such a big thing. I know he was the first show I ever saw as well in Cape Town and he put up this gigantic statue of himself, like in the middle of Cape Town. And we were all like, who is this God? And, you know, because that's what he wanted. He wanted to create that cult-like figure, yeah. which I think... But also seeing such a huge show, was that the thing for you that made you continue to see music live? No, I think I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I enjoyed the concert, but I, I think I was expecting something else. Um, so probably now I would have enjoyed more. But right. the thing is that, no, no, I think that I was more into rock music and heavy metal music at that time, a little bit later. And probably... Watching the Guns N' Roses concert, the, at a, I think it was an Appetite for Destruction '89. I was so shocked by that concert. With like, it was like it, it had a had a lot of punk attitude. That mm. concert, even it was rock and roll with Axl Rose jumping to the crowd. I think that made me thought, I want to do this. So that's why we end up making records like well, you this. Saw that. Yeah. <laughs> I got the roses. What was yours? I, you know, it's hard for me to remember really what the okay. specific the first. first concert was. But I always, the one I always remember is I saw, there used to be a college, I grew up on Long Island, and there used to be a college called CW Post that had concerts. And I'm pretty sure it was the band 
with John Sebastian opening wow. up solo. I think that was the first How concert. How old were you? I was pretty young. I was probably in, in like ninth or 10th grade, so 13, 14, 15, something like that. And I don't know if I went to concerts before that, but they, they had yeah. concerts pretty regularly there. And um, I think that's what it was. Right around the same time, uh, one of my friends had a birthday party and took three of his, three of his close friends, and I was one, to the Fillmore East to see uh, Santana with the James Gang in support oh, wow. and a band called Catfish opening up. And that was amazing because it was one of the few times I was ever at the Fillmore East. And, and it was Santana right around the Woodstock period. Yeah. It must have been 69 or 70 uh, when they you know, were playing that first record, mm. and, which was so amazing. And, and like to be at the Fillmore East, you know, it was, it was, it was pretty That's incredible. Spectacle. Was there an artist that you saw that you realized at that moment, that's exactly what I need to do? That's exactly my path. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that path changed a bunch. I mean, the, the, that, that question starts for me with before having seen live concerts, like hearing records right. and hearing the Beatles in particular when I was super young. For some, for some strange reason, my father brought home the first Beatles record when it was released. And I, I sort of heard all of their records in real time, you know, from I was very, mm -hmm. very young when they started. But I heard all those records in real time and they made a huge impression on me. But I think in terms of saying seriously, you know, mm -hmm. you, if I grew up in a musical household. You play music when you're a kid, you play with your it's friends or whatever. You, yeah. But then you sort of think like, well, you know, you, I'm not going to be a musician when I grow up. Who who gets to do that? You know, these special people oh, get God, to do that. Did you know? Yeah, and and so you know, you, I went off to school and I, I was practicing visual art and I was sort of shifted gears. And then punk happened. So you know, seeing and hearing Talking Heads and Television and Teenage Jesus and the Jerks and DNA. Those are the bands that and and from California, Black Flag and the Minutemen and the Meat Puppets. Those are the bands that really made me want to like get back into that game and like think I had some something to give to it. Right. And, you know, that's like 77, 78, like just about finishing uh, university. And that's really yeah. the, the music that made me motivated to want to do it in a more serious mm -hmm. way. So when, when was the first performance? Are <laughs> you looking at me? Um, what was the first performance that you ever, the first concert you ever played? You, go well, first. If, I don't know if... If the performances of, of classical piano when I was like, I don't know, 10 years old count, that could be an Absolutely. option. Absolutely, yes, of, of course. course. I did many every year, two or three in front of our friends and... But in a paying one. audience or just in... No, family, friends and family. Okay, so first paying, but first concert with an, a paying audience. I think it was in high school, but I was playing... Heavy metal covers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, my, I had a band in high school that was my first performing band. And we played for about a year, and we also did covers. Mm -hmm. And, like, we did, you know, I don't know. I don't even want to say what we did. But um, I'm sure you're no, wait, covers. We have to now say what you did. We did what Rolling Stones songs, and we did, uh, you know, like... Uh, this song by that group, Blood Rock, and like a bunch of things. There was there was a really hotshot guitar player in in my town, and uh, I showed up for the first rehearsal with my guitar, and like these guys were really good players, yeah. and they were like, "You you can't play, you can't play, you can only sing." No, so oh, I was well, the singer, so and like okay. we played for a year, and I can't remember what the band was called. It's like it's really weird. Like, whole, we played for time. like a year, oh. and I can remember all the guys' names, but I can't remember what we called ourselves, which is really weird. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. To 
ask you what the name was. Yeah. Oh, okay. And then in, in college, like after this punk explosion, my friends and I in art school were like, let's form a band. And, you know, we started playing covers. We were playing uh, current covers, like songs by, you know, Blondie or Talking Heads or whatever. And we were choosing uh, nuggets from the 60s that, that in the end, a lot of other punk mm. bands covered, you know, those kind of songs that like led to that movement. Mm. And then at a certain point, we thought like, well, listen, guys, if we're going to be serious about this, we have to throw out all the other people's songs and start writing our own songs. This was this band called The Flux that I had in college that I first came to New York with. And, mm -hmm. and we just we started writing songs. We were like, we, you know, that's nothing that somebody teaches you how to do, you know, right. but, it, but it comes from listening to songs over many years and getting a feeling for how to do it and. Do you think that playing covers can be that nice little gateway into figuring out what you like to play and what feels comfy for you in front of an audience? Yeah, I think everybody starts with covers, don't they? I mean, whether I it's so. Debussy or what, what were you playing on the piano? Well, I don't know. Modernist stuff? No, Bella Bartok. Romantic? Bel no, Bella Bartok. Bartok. I remember yeah. Bartok well, and Bach. Yes, yeah. but... Good but stuff. I don't think I would be able to play it now, but I was able to play when I was 12. <laughs> I bet you could. <laughs> but, Raul, did you, you started out in a hardcore band. That was your, that was your start. Well, yes, if you forget about the heavy metal covers. Which we just did. I was uh, 17 years old in a hardcore band quite well known with a not very good name that it's, were called Cornflakes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I personally love that name. It conjures a lot of different imagery. It's wonderful. Uh, a TV series called The Young Ones from England. Like, sure. Yeah. yeah. There was an episode that that one of those guys was was saying was filling like a form on on a cornflakes package that was saying define cornflakes in ten words. And the guy was doing cornflakes, cornflakes, cornflakes. <laughs> so that's why the band was named like this. <laughs> You worked, obviously, for a time with Glenn Branca's Guitar uh -huh. Orchestra. Did that feel like something that would become what it became in the end? Like this legend and this, you know, historical, mo monumentous moment. Did, did you ever think at the time that you were involved that it would become like that? Well, I thought at the time, you know, as soon as I moved to New York... I met a, a fellow musician named Anthony Coleman, a keyboard player that was playing with Glenn. And he was like, oh, you got to come and see this guy I'm playing with. It's really crazy music. And um, as soon as I heard it, I knew I was in the presence of something unbelievable mm. and, and, and great and, and special. And, you know, this was late 70s, early 80s in New York. There was so much interesting stuff going on. And, you know, there, there was there was... It was all mixing together in this really interesting mm. way. And so at first I heard him and some other uh, like-minded souls like Reese Chatham. And, and at that time, Philip Glass and Steve Reich right. were kind of mixing in that same minimalist world, uh, although they weren't using electric guitars. But he was using electric guitars. And, you know, like somebody called his music like the last three chords of a Who song stretched yeah. out for 45 <laughs> minutes. And like, that sounds great to me. Yeah. And that's kind of, that was, this, it was a really apt Description yeah. and you could say that about Beethoven that the the, the chords are this, those same like big chords mm. like that you know and and uh, he was challenging himself to do radical music mm. and so many people in New York were doing that at that point you know all those no wave artists DNA mm. and contortions and and Teenage Jesus and the Jerks and and you, they made it clear that you didn't have to have skill to do this you had to have ideas 
you know, and, and Glenn had ideas in mm. spades and he had this vision for this kind of ec ecstatic music. And, and so first I saw it and then magically I, I was in his ensemble yeah. and that grew for a while. And actually we went and saw the latest version of his ensemble playing his music just like three nights ago oh, wow. at St. Vitus in ah. Brooklyn. I mean, he passed away last year, but mm -hmm. his ensemble, it was the first performance that his group had done That's since he died right, playing yeah. his, he's got a new record out that was recorded right before he died. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it was an amazing time mm -hmm. in New York. There was so much crazy stuff going on in all facets of, you know, there was explosions in visual art. There was Merce Cunningham and John Cage and, you know, all this great stuff was happening. And being here, you were a part of it in a way, you know. And it seeped into, obviously, I love the word ideas. I think it's so important to single that out because it wasn't just about creating things to get famous or meet other people. Yeah. It was really just coming up with as many ideas as possible. Yeah. And you can hear that. You can hear like almost the brain ticking. And well, there yeah. was no idea to get famous because it was impossible at that yeah. moment. There was no there was no internet. There were no magazines covering any any of that music mm -hmm. in that period. So, you know, in New York the only people who really experienced that were people who lived in, in New York mm. because it didn't travel. Most of those groups didn't tour. I mean, even groups like Television or the Voidoids mm. hardly toured at all. So if you weren't here, you kind of, you know, you missed it. And, and that's the way, you know, Glenn's music kind of reached a wider public in a way. But at that time, it was very hermetic. You know, nobody mm. was writing about it. It was just like word of mouth between mm. local figures, you know, that, that were making it happen. And it was, it was about ideas. I mean, all those early punk groups, a lot of them didn't know how to play. You know, they're, they're, mm -hmm. uh, this organization downtown called Blank Forms is doing a, a tribute to uh, Ardo Lindsay and Ikwe Mori from the group DNA. And I was reading the bio and it talked about how they decided to form a group and like Ardo had never played guitar before and he went out and bought a guitar and Ikwe had never played the drums before but found a drum set and they started, <laughs> started a band. <laughs> and it was all about the ideas that they were right. using and like this this idea of like stripping, you know, what is rock music really? Is it really about D and C and G or is it about like an attitude and a, a kind of emotive vocal mm. and a, a sort of primitive rhythmic thing? Like those are really mm. where rock music started. And so that's all they needed was this idea, you know, Lydia's first group had like uh, one freaky looking guy banging a snare yeah. drum and another well, guy playing gonna... a bass with two strings and she was playing slide guitar which <laughs> exactly. she didn't know how to do and it was like was it was amazing yeah you know? and the, but that rawness is so palpable and I feel yeah. like that like you just can't it's and that's just what such we all loved era. about rock and roll exactly. in the beginning yeah. was that raw quality mm. and you know and in a way in a way that's why I stopped playing music when I was in school and like switched to visual art because that raw thing got so refined. It was a period when rock music got so refined and it was about like stadium shows and flash pots and all that stuff. And it, it, it lost the, the, uh, the kernel mm -hmm. of that energy that made it interesting. And then all of a sudden that got revived again, you know? You mentioned Steve Reich. Weren't you his neighbor? Yeah, we lived in the same building for like about, we, we, we still live That's in that incredible. building, but he lived in the same building with us for about 10 years until he absconded out of New York <laughs> City for the country. And we That's became, crazy. we became, you know, his music meant a lot to me from before I mm. moved in there. And, and then we got to know each other and become friends, which was quite a thrill. Did you, did he, did you swap any instruments or did he, did he? 
<clears throat> well, leave you with anything? Or he had this early piece that anything? really made an impression on me called Four Organs. Mm -hmm. And it was, it's one side of an LP record. It's like 25 or 30 minutes long. And it's just four people playing organs and one guy shaking maracas to keep the time. And it's this really beautiful uh, minimalist piece where the organs start playing. You know, it's like a rhythmic thing and they're playing very slowly. Dun, dun, and slowly over like 25 minutes, each note gets longer and longer until they're playing like, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's super great. And so when I first moved into this building, I was prowling around in the basement one day and there were the four organs in the corner, like gathering oh dust, God. you know, just like, uh, and there was a whole bunch of gear that said like Steve Reich on it, like all of this gear of his. Do not touch Lee. Well, yeah. something like that. And I photographed the organs cause I was like, wow, this is so cool that they're here. These Farfisa organs and yeah. um, made this art piece out of it and gave him one. And then when he moved out yeah, of the building, cool. he was like, you want those organs? They're still down in the basement. And like, and he gave me all this stuff, all these microphones oh, wow. and glockenspiel that he had used on drumming and, and the four organs which live at the Sonic Youth studio and, wow. and you know so it was it was uh, like he was handing them down in a way which was really <laughs> bestowing cool bestowing them upon yeah, you yeah. and then also one thing that I also wanted to talk about is you toured as Sonic Youth you toured with Neil Young yeah but I think it was for like I just wanted to double check it was for a few months it wasn't just yeah, like a normal yeah it was for three months wow yeah. So yeah. that was in 1991. Yeah, 90 or ni 90, maybe 90. Um, uh, Which what? gig? There's an audience member. So, Come to the microphone. Crazy Horse. It was amazing. You know, you guys what played, gig? You guys Where was it? I don't know. It the RPI Okay, what? Detroit, RPI. We played insane. hockey arenas with Neil for three months, and we had never done anything like that before. God, I can imagine. And, you know, a couple of us in the band, I mean, I think we, uh, all of us in Sonic Youth love Neil Young at this point, but at that point, I think Kim and Thurston were a little lukewarm on Neil, but mm. Steve and I were just like rabid Neil fans. I mean, I learned how to play acoustic guitar playing those songs and, you know, CSNY stuff and all that. But it was kind of amazing to, to be around him for three months. He, at that point in his career, he was so insulated that he really didn't have any idea mm. what was going on in the, in the greater world of music. He was so in, wrapped up in his own thing. And he had never toured with an opening act before. He'd always just been his own band. How did it come about then? How I don't did know. I think he just happened? decided he wanted to start reaching out and finding out what was going on. He was hearing about, you know, he was inspired by punk music. Mm. You know, he wrote a song name checking Johnny Rotten. And, um, it was just one of those things. He heard something about us, and it was one of those like managers talking to managers thing that got us the job. Yeah. But uh, we bonded with him and became kind of kind of friendly with him. You know, to this day, uh, you know, I'll go see him if he plays in New York and say hello and whatnot. Could you at any point ask him any sort of? I don't want to say advice because it's so boxed. But at any point, did you just want to just pick his brain? in terms of how he writes songs, how he performs them, because his, his shows are often so long. Mm. And as anyone, if anyone has seen a Neil Young show, it's just crying people. And <laughs> it's, it's really unbelievable to be part of that. Um, but he's also got that very mysterious, as you said, locked in his own world yeah. Yeah. aura about him. So yeah. was there anything that you got to ask him or at least anything that you learned through performing well, alongside him? It was more just like watching the way things happen. Like, you know, that was right at the period when Sonic Youth signed to a major label, which was kind of a foreign thing for us to begin with. And we felt a little bit like, 
you know, we were we grew up like reading every music bio, all these uh, artists that we loved, and all of a sudden we had a chance to like be in that world for real, like being on a major label mm. and see how these labels work and spend, you know, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars making a record or something weird like that. <laughs> yeah. And we felt a little bit like you know we were still the punks inside, so we were kind of like spies in this house of music, and then. When he invited us on tour, and that was for our first record for Geffen. So again, like we'd always read about like these artists that were playing in these big arenas and all that stuff. We never imagined that we would do that. But we, here we were, again, kind of like spies in this house and like big road crew, all these macho guys. They really hated <laughs> us to death, his crew. They hated what we did. They thought we were jokers, that we didn't know how to play or any of this stuff. But luckily, Neil liked what we did, mm. you know? And um, and it was it was really funny because his road crew, you know, they'd never had to deal with an opening band before at all, let alone a band like that. us that was yeah. hanging the guitars <laughs> off the end of the stage and yeah. pulling on the cord and like dang, yes. you know, all this weird shit. They they thought we were just inept. <laughs> and you know, and half of his crowd was booing when we played. They really? thought we were jokers too. But Neil Neil used to like he, you know he would stretch out before every gig and and we had this last song that we played every night called Expressway to Your Skull, which had a long, beautiful. Uh, tonal ending mm. and he said like he was under the stage doing his stretches and workouts every night before going on he was like man i'm so inspired listening to you guys play that and like <laughs> he gave us all this inspiration but wow. then like watching the way he was on stage like he had his stage show so mm. down like he's one of the greatest sounding artists oh, like absolutely. nobody not very many people can make places like the garden sound good <laughs> But he always did, and like it was because he was really tuned into these factors that mm. we valued as well. And so, you know, we kind of learned a lot just by being around him in terms of the way he dealt with his mm. crew and stuff. You know, and the crew were like giving us shit, and and like a couple weeks in, it got to the point where we were like, we're gonna leave. This is a bummer. Like they're yeah. not letting us play loud, or you know, all this. And like Neil yelled at his. We 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 got the message to him, and like he was like, I invited these guys. You got to let them do their wow. thing, and like. It it was just kind of amazing to see how it worked, you know, and his bus, his specially decked out bus and everything. And, you know, he wasn't always available to talk to. Mm. But as the tour went on, he would he would be more more available. And, you know, by the time it was over, we'd gotten to hang out yeah. with him. And, and the Crazy Horse guys were amazing. Like they were super supportive and, and nice. And, you know, there were a couple members of his crew that were very especially uh, gracious to us. Is it there, was amazing. Yeah. It was the first time we'd ever had a tour bus or played on those kind of stages. Or, yeah. you know, it was really weird because they were hockey arenas, so they would put plywood down on the floor. But like, you know, you'd be you'd roll in in the afternoon and do sound checks and stuff. And if you were walking around, they were freezing cold because you were standing on this little piece of wood that had ice underneath it. You know, it was really weird. It was weird, weird lifestyle. So was there a was there a show that you've played that really sticks out whether that's you know uh, together or you know something that you played with the band is there a show that really stuck out well, you know, there's so many. I know. That's you know, why I asked you about one. It's hard. Yeah. No, I'm so sorry for asking uh, that No, I mean, but it's, it's, it's <laughs> one of those questions that's so hard to answer, especially because we had... We had a pretty magical career, mm -hmm. you know. One show I would mention was in 87, we were playing in England, was when we were really starting to get heated up in England. We, we were playing the sister record, I think, and we had the first of our kind of like really well-publicized, you know, well-attended gigs there. And 
we were rehearsing, and we used to do this version of the Stooges, I Want to Be Your Dog. And we were rehearsing in this rehearsal room somewhere. And it turned out that Iggy was rehearsing with one of these pickup bands he had for a while before he reconvened the real Stooges in the next room. And he heard us doing I Want to Be Your Dog. And like he was peeking through the window or something. And, and like we were like, yeah, we're playing, you know, tomorrow night in, in the town and country club. Come along, you know. And he was like, yeah, maybe I'll show up. And, and our manager was like, Iggy, you got to come and sing I Want to Be <laughs> you Your Dog with it. them. And we were like, yeah, sure. But he came and like he got on stage with us and sang I Want to Be Your Dog. And it was like one of those crazy, like, I can't believe this is happening. You know, I'm like I'm leaning on Iggy's shoulder playing the riff. And, you know, like, so that was amazing. But, you know. Yeah. There were so many things. Like we got to play with a famous uh, French singer, Brigitte Fontaine. Mm -hmm. we, we got to collaborate with her and her partner, Oreski, and, and do a, a performance at the Pompidou Center in England with, with the two of them. And that was, you know, a different shifted gear. But, you know, we got to work with a lot of our heroes over the years. So it's hard to pick one, really. You know, there were a lot of situations like that, uh, you know where people that you really, really admire, whether it's mm. Joey Ramone or Nick Cave or, you know, uh, I don't know, Henry Rollins or, you know, Mike Watt, you know, whoever it is, these these different people from mm. different points in your life where you're like, their music meant, or David Byrne, you know, they, it meant mm. a whole lot to you, you know, and then at some point later, you're kind of colleagues in a weird way, which is kind of crazy. Right. Have you seen the Nick Cave Q&A conversation? I the one in New York. I was oh, so God. bummed. We were just talking about that earlier. And uh, that, that whole concept. Did you go? We went to the one now in Chicago. Oh, and man. it was absolutely such a fascinating setup. Because he's kind of tapped into this gold mine. Which yeah. is kind of what we're doing here. Yeah. Other than you're not playing your music live. But what he does is he asks the audience to ask him questions yeah. and then when he's like over it and he can't answer anymore he just goes and plays yeah. so it's like mad scientist yeah. like no 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 I can't handle it anymore and he goes and plays yeah. and it's such a it's it's one of the most incredible things I've seen yeah. um, especially coming from an artist like that who just gives so much well you, you know, know? This, these, these are the kind of artists we value the most like what a right. career you know and, yeah. and artists who have that kind of longevity is pretty special. Now, Lydia Lunch took Kim and Thurston and I to see the birthday party yeah. in New York in like 1981. Wow. And we met all those guys. And then Nick invited Sonic Youth to tour with him in England, the first Bad Seeds tour when he finally, the birthday party was oh, wow. falling apart. Yeah. And, and it was still with Roland Howard and McCarvey and... and and so we've known those guys a really long time. And, and his records have been, especially his recent mm. couple records, have been a real touchstone for us in terms of an artist who's, you know, he's known for these like wild frenetic things, <clears throat> but like a Skeleton Tree and the new one that just came out, mm, have mined yeah. this other thing. And like we've been listening to those records a lot and talking about the way, the way those records have this totality about them that's really special. And it's been very inspirational to what, to just in terms of it's it's another person who we've been listening to the recent work of mm. and you know somebody who's been around for i don't know is it 40 years or so something long, like that yeah. and still doing work that inspires <laughs> you you know um, it's, it's kind of impossible to quantify because you're looking at this person who's created work that comes directly it's like he scraped it out of his yeah, heart and he like yeah. throws it out to you and then he leaves it up to you to 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 take care of it yeah and he's completely conscious of the artist and the fan relationship which yeah. i think is something 
that I feel like you both are as well in the work that you do in everything that you've done. That's so important to be fans first as well as artists. Yeah. And I think he is also a fan, but then half the time he's like, I don't know why I'm doing half of this stuff. It just comes. Yeah. So that experimentation side of it is also there, yeah. which I think is well, you know, you know, um, Raul works a lot in the, the in in flamen the flamenco world, which is really a big right. deal in in, in uh, Spain and, and Latin countries. And it was making me think of another artist like this, because well, I'd like to know who you would single out for this. But we worked with uh, uh, Sonic Youth worked with this artist, a very famous flamenco singer called Enrique Morente, mm -hmm. and we got to do something with him. And for a band like us to work with this great man was was pretty radical at the time. And I know you worked with him. But like, if somebody asked you, like, who was somebody you got to work with that really mm. was a special, you know? Hmm. Well, in probably in the world of flamenco, Enrique was like one of the big names because he he was very criticized because he was the first one to open flamenco after the seventies. In the seventies, the late seventies, they decided that flamenco. They, I mean, some people decided that flamenco had to be in a concrete way. And Enrique didn't like want... Like a new tradition. Mm. Yeah, 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 the tradition. Mm. The you, yes. you cannot do some things. Yeah. You have to play always like the, the same structures, like the same ways of singing. They, they thought that these kind of broken voices were the good ones and not the other ones. And Enrique was... He didn't want to think like this, and he started to do the things completely the opposite and open flamenco. And he's like... I don't know, he's the biggest name with Camarón probably in flamenco. And to be able or to... Who had the option, the opportunity to play with him? That was like a big thing for me. Yeah, mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's and, and Raúl has gone on to expand the lexicon of flamenco, working with with people like Rosalia and some other artists that that he's worked with, and add new elements to that voice. Sometimes with criticism from traditionalists. Mm. Well, I, I that's punk that's in a way, right. you know. <laughs> you know, punk. punk. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't know how folklore or folk music right. is here inside. I mean, if there's a lot of purists, but in flamenco and in father music, in other popular music, there are some traditionalists that they don't want things to change. Even sometimes they think that the tradition is something that happened in the 70s. Mm. It didn't happen before because yeah. if you listen to like some flamenco from the 50s, they are super punk again. Like they play almost without a structure. Mm. They play super dirty. So as soon as, as I started to be interested in flamenco and to work with flamencos that were open-minded, I realized that the way I was working was very similar to the way they worked before. Yeah. Like before they tried to to close everything into yeah. structures. And yeah. Hmm. Hmm. So I just checked the time. We're running a little bit late and I probably could sit and talk to you for a very long time and I forgot you guys were here. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, I think my last question, I do have, uh, we crowdsourced some questions, okay. which we don't often do, but I thought it was a really special moment to do it. And so we do have two questions that we got from uh, really excited fans. Um, but I think I wanted to just ask each of you, as kind of a closing sentiment, why do you both feel like you are suited to be artists? Why do you feel like you're suited to be constantly creating and to steal your word, to constantly be creating ideas as you both do in many different forms? Why do you feel like you suit that? 
Because we're not suited to work a normal job? <laughs> I don't know, you know? It, it, like I said before, like you never imagine when you, like when, you, when you're a kid growing up, you look up to certain artists and you never, like how do you get there? How do you right. get to that place? What's the you line? Know? It, it's hard to say how you get there, you know? But, but part of it is like, Maybe then why have you, you continued to you, do it? Maybe that's the, that's the question. In a way, maybe the answer is, is not to... I don't see myself, I don't know if it happened to you, like an artist touched by God, like the Rom because the Romantics thought that they changed the idea of, of the composer or the artist mm -hmm. or the painter before it was someone who knew how to paint and was the same that the other one who was making shoes or making furniture. Yeah. I mean, I can see myself as someone, an artisan more than an artist. I like to work every day and I like to play music and I like to share my music mm -hmm. with other people that, that I like. And that's our case. I mean, mm -hmm. when we are together, we love to share our, our ideas. But I don't think about this idea, it's great and everybody's going to mm. love it because it's, it's I don't know. I, it's not that I don't care, it's just that I don't know and it's not so important. Well, you know, my, when I was yeah, in that's school a really good point. and yeah. studying art, my painting teacher, my, my first year painting teacher, a uh, great man named Angelo Apollito, said, you know, we're not going to talk about talent here. You can leave your talent at the door. You got to show up every day. That's the way things get done and that's the way new work gets made. You, you, you got to put in the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a way, when you talk about musicians, you say musicians play. And like, that that's sounds great. We, yeah. don't, we, don't, we work really hard, but it's, it's, it's the kind of work that is also play to a certain mm -hmm. degree. So that's, that sounds great. Of course, and that's why you continue to do it. All yeah, these so you, years. but you have to show up and put in a lot of hard work. We've put in so many hours together on these records, but it's it's like so rewarding and fulfilling personally and mm. and creatively that you just it just makes you want to keep going. I guess. What is in store for the live shows? What what do you? It is fine. <laughs> We're trying to smiling. figure that out right now. That's a hard call. Yeah, because oh, right we made this record. It's not you know. When a band makes a record, you practice your songs and then you go in the studio and you record right. them and you kind of know what you're going to do live. But we built these songs up like making sculpture or something like that. And now we're trying to figure out how to do them. And one thing we found with the last record was when we first started performing, we tried to play it exactly like the record. With If there were sound samples, we tried to have them in the mm -hmm. mix and all that stuff. And then as we kept playing, we, we got looser and looser with it. You know, And the songs became these malleable things that could be played in many different ways. I could play them solo on acoustic guitars, mm -hmm. or we could play them in an improvising trio with like long extensions of sections. And so we're looking for what these songs are, are, are in mm -hmm. their kernel. You know? So we're trying to figure out how faithful we want to be to the record or how faithful we want to be to this, the, the essence of the songs. Yeah, and the know? experience of playing live. Yeah, and maybe we'll do some shows as a duo. Maybe we'll work with our drummer, Booker Stardrum, and we're, we're not sure exactly how it's going to go. But, I mean, I think our idea is that we want to present it in a kind of, like the way you would go to the theater in a way, like so that oh, the lighting, absolutely. the lighting yeah. is very important, and this kind of theatrical quality to the presentation. Because we're not going to be like jumping around, <laughs> playing, playing, you know, loud, crazy rock music. So we want it to be a kind of an experience. But we're there's still... energy to the album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously, for sure. a lot of people haven't heard sure. it here, but when yeah. you do hear it, there is this energy to it that you yeah. do feel like having something more theatrical. Yeah. And Pur there's a purpose to it, having some sort of focus and purpose. Yeah, we're Just trying to figure that out right yeah. now. And that's, that's kind of exciting right now because Absolutely. we made it and now we're trying to figure out how to reproduce it and 
it's 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 we're just we're just cracking the nut right now after a week of work of figuring yeah. out oh okay here we here we see it's, we see it's it's going to be possible <laughs> we think well i'm sorry for asking you halfway through the process but no it's okay good, good luck it's, with that the process is kind of ongoing that's wonderful you know? i hope it continues and i'm excited to see it see it live um, so to get to the crowdsource questions this one's quite lovely this is from at Grace May underscore Grace May underscore. What song makes you feel most alive? That's kind of sweet. <laughs> you look at me with a difficult question. Like um, from the ones we play, from the ones we listen to. I mean, that's completely up to you. I think it's that's open ended. In general, call me maybe by. Um... <laughs> 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 I mean, that's great. Do I played that song on repeat for weeks. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a hard question. I know it's, it's hard a hard, to, but hard we are here for the hard questions. Okay. okay. I, I mean, I went on, on record there. Well, <laughs> probably when you listen to a very good song, like Famous Blue Raincoat, you feel alive because you yeah. like to feel something when you listen yeah. to something. Leonard Cohen, Famous Blue Raincoat. Oh, gosh. Yeah. 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 I re recently returned to that music. You know, we went to see that show uptown at the Jewish Museum, and I went home and just started listening to Leonard Cohen again and watching some of those films about him. And, like, I mean, it is true that there's certain, you know, we were talking before about, like, mm -hmm. artists that have this longevity, like, right. like Neil or Dylan or Yoko or whoever it mm -hmm. is. But that's not to say that we discount the pleasure of a one-hit wonder or somebody who makes one fantastic record and never does anything else great again. Forever. You can value yeah. that just, just as much. Um, but there's something about those that certain music that you return to again and again, and no matter what part of your life you're in, it still talks to you in a way. You know, some stuff talks to you in a particular period, and some stuff talks to you at every period in your life if you return to it or when you return to it. If you can. Yeah. Sometimes it's too difficult to. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so one more. I've always been curious about the field recordings and tape loops that you've used to make and play during the early Sonic Youth shows. What is the story behind some of those? And thinking of the scream tape scream in particular. Actually, this is from Chuck. This says from Chuck. Oh, Thank Chuck. You, Chuck. <laughs> the, we That's used a to great play. Question. We used to play songs on tape. Even even in the early days of Sonic Youth, we you know we, we got to this point right around the time we were making Bad Moon Rising, which was a record where all the songs go together. There's no pauses on the mm -hmm. album between the songs, and and that's the way we played live. We were like, we don't need to stop and get people to applaud. <laughs> we just want to do this kind of suite of songs in a way. And so we we built in all these transitional improvisations, and sometimes it was based on on recordings, and we played bits of the Stooges and we played Pat Benatar and we played, we had this tape called the Scream Tape that Thurston and I made in an old silo somewhere where in Switzerland, I think, where we were just screaming like, ah! <laughs> and you know, getting that reverby echo. And mm -hmm. like we recorded it on a Walkman, which were these weird instruments, the weird recording tools that people had If in the you 80s. you know about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, we started using it live on stage and, and it, was, it became the introductory uh, sound piece mm -hmm. to this song called The Burning Spear. Uh, and, you know, we liked the idea that we could even, you know, even for us, we were like a guitar-based rock band, but we were also mixing in uh, analog mm -hmm. tape sounds in, in strange ways. And uh, so in the early days and, you know, through... 
a lot of the period we were using stuff like that, uh, playing Madonna songs and Pat Benatar songs while we were changing guitars and stuff. <laughs> and <screaming. laughs> yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I won't keep you for much longer. It feels like it was 10 minutes. <laughs> no, that was really wonderful. Thank you both. Thank for being you, my guests on the yes. show. And Our thank pleasure. you to everybody here. If you can give this a yeah. and, and also um, another shout out to StubHub and Matt, who I've worked with really closely. Thank you for hosting us in your beautiful underground lair. <laughs> and um, also to Mona at Mute and Mute Records. Yes. Yeah. And to the new album. Yes. We are so excited. Yeah, we are too. And thank you everybody for being here and for spending this time. Yeah. This Must Be The Gig is produced by Adam Kibble and we'd like to thank Billy Yost and the Kickback for our theme song, Rube and buy their music at thekickbackband.com, Daniel Brater and Dean Berger for their additional sound design, and the Consequence Podcast Network, where you'll find a bunch of other amazing shows. listened this far why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on apple podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too for information on new episodes be sure to follow us on facebook twitter or instagram at tmbtgpod and generally just irritate everyone you know about the show thanks again and i miss you already again for listening to this week's episode here's a little reminder that StubHub is the best place to score the tickets you need whenever you need them backed by their 100% fan protect guarantee StubHub has the seats you want at the price you want to pay and they're never sold out so you can score tickets up to the last minute head to cosradio.lv slash StubHub that's cosradio.lv slash StubHub, and then enjoy the show. Consequence Podcast Network.